Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 34, Low-Carb Eating and Kidney Health. One of the most persistent oppositions to a low-carb diet is the idea that it can damage the kidneys. Let's dive into what the data really shows. This is a a very interesting topic because it involves, interesting for me, because it really brings in several aspects of human health from the biochemistry and and the the, the physiology of the body, the lungs and the kidneys, because you really have to understand all of these things to really appreciate the... Uh, what's really happening and where the uh, concern um, with regards to the kidneys comes from. Where is it, where is it born? Um, and, and it really comes from a, a general, and I would say misunderstanding of biochemistry and physiology. Now, there are two things I wanted to bring up with regards to keto and kidneys. One is the catabolism of proteins, because that very much plays a part of this. And then second, it is ketosis itself, and the potential for an acidification of the blood. Now, throughout all of this discussion, at the end of it all, when I go through these two um, aspects or pillars of the conversation or the lesson, I want to, I will emphasize something called GFR, which is a, a metric that is used clinically to measure the health of the kidneys. And that is short for glomerular filtration rate. And the glomerulus is the business end of the kidney. Um, The kidney is loaded with millions of these little things. And it's essentially, it really is the operating unit of the kidney. And imagine these countless little capillaries as you have an artery flowing to the kidney, let's just take one. And then you have the vein coming out of the kidney. In the process, in, in between the artery and the vein are these countless little capillaries. 
And essentially what happens is the thick blood vessel of the artery gets separated into millions of teeny little capillaries. And these capillaries are wrapped, they're housed in almost a little envelope. Um, and this, this envelope is pulling things in from the blood. And so on one hand, I have here the blood, the capillary. And on the other hand here, I have what's kind of the kidney side of things, which is what's getting filtered. And then it would be moving towards the bladder, what would become, what would turn into urine. Now there's a little more to it than that, but that's kind of what we're talking about. So the glomerular filtration rate is the rate at which stuff is coming from the blood and getting filtered and passing into what will be into the kidney, into what would become urine. So GFR is, is the main outcome that is used to measure the health of the kidney. And that's important because that's what I'm going to refer to when we really explore the impact of protein catabolism and ketosis on kidney health. So the first thing, proteins, because there's a lot of talk of how high protein diets will damage the kidneys. And that plays into concerns with low carb or ketogenic diets because they also tend to be higher protein diets than the standard American diet, most certainly. Now, one little tangent for just a moment is uh, the, I, I have to simply pay homage to Sir Hans Krebs, this famous um, German Jewish scientist who then immigrated to, to London, to the UK rather, um, during World War II because of his ancestry. And what's, I have to mention Sir Hans Krebs because he's the one who discovered the two relevant biochemical pathways that I'm actually, that I need to discuss when I talk about um, protein catabolism. That's the urea cycle and then the famous Krebs cycle or what I like to call the citrate cycle because he discovered both of them. So they could both be called the Krebs cycle technically. So we have the urea cycle and then the citrate cycle commonly referred to as the Krebs cycle, which happens in the mitochondria. That's the famous one that is giving the mitochondria, um, you know, the, the blocks, the, the, the stuff that it will use for energy. So um, at first we have a protein, an amino acid, as, it, as the protein is split up into its component parts, we're left with the remaining amino acids. In some states where the amino acids are required for energy, and this is not a common state, this is not something the body does very readily. It is not something the body does often. It happens all the time at very low rates, but rarely is this a primary source of energy. But when amino acids are used for energy, you have one part of the amino, you have two parts of the amino acid. You have the ammonium, which is a nitrogen-based molecule, and then you have just the carbons that, that remain. Well, the carbons will go from, and this is what the urea cycle is doing. It's kind of pulling these apart and dealing with these two molecules. The carbons actually will then feed into the citrate cycle or famously referred to as the Krebs cycle. And that will be used to give the body energy. So that's actually the precise mechanism whereby protein or amino acids are turned into energy to be used by the body. And that's the same process that can be used to make new glucose for example, or even turn to fat, it would be through, by going through the citrate cycle. Although those, although those processes don't happen very readily, um, the, the mitochondria would just burn it as energy. So again, you take the amino acid, you split it up into the nitrogen component, which is ammonium, and then the carbon component, which is referred to often as a keto acid. And that goes into the, um, that goes into the, Krebs, the citrate cycle or Krebs cycle. Now the ammonium is toxic. We have to deal with that. And a part of our dealing with that is sending the ammonium through the urea cycle at the end, or a part of that urea cycle is in fact the production of the 
of the molecule urea. Urea also is a molecule that has to be disposed of. And so this then is shuttled in a way to the kidneys and we are filtering it through the glomerulus into the, what will be the urine. Named, of course, because of the high concentration of urea that works its way in there. So now we have the inclusion of the kidneys when it comes to protein. So just, just to confirm there. So when we have protein and we're breaking protein down or we are catabolizing protein, we're left with ammonium that is toxic. We must get rid of it. We deal with it through the urea cycle and the urea cycle will produce this, this byproduct, urea. And now the body, the kidneys know what to do with urea. They will step up. They will filter, filter the urea out and that will become a primary component of urine. Now, the idea is that if you eat a very high protein diet, you, you are having to engage the urea cycle and produce more urea um, and then eliminate that urea. And that is putting a stress on the kidneys. That's the idea. The evidence simply doesn't back that up. So this is what I alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, where this is people taking a little bit of biochemistry and then assuming they're extrapolating that, that it would create some kind of problem. It just doesn't play out that way. One of the studies that we're citing here, I actually, um, I know we have the, this link is, is up, but let me just pull up the title because I'd closed it. Um, this title is, um, changes in kidney function do not differ between healthy adults, um, blah, 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 blah. It's published in the Journal of Nutrition in 2018. And the senior author on this is Stuart Phillips, um, one of the legends in protein research of the modern age. They concluded, so this was a meta-analysis. They took all available studies that looked at, uh, looked at different um, consumption of, of protein and then explored kidney function. So they, they reviewed every study that had been published on that topic. And in their conclusions, they note, and I quote, high protein diets result in higher GFRs. So glomerular filtration rate, rate went up. Remember, that really is the key indicator of kidney health. So if anything, this suggested, this very first phrase, that the high protein diets were improving GFR. And then they, then they went on though and provided a little more nuance However, when changes in GFR were compared, dietary protein had no effect. And so they conclude our analysis indicates that high protein intakes do not adversely influence kidney function on GFR in healthy, in healthy adults. That really is the final authoritative comment, full stop. High protein diets do not negatively impact GFR. And remember, GFR is the indicator of kidney health. So that alleviates the one primary concern of the two, that a, a low carb ketogenic diet, because it tends to be higher in protein, that that would potentially damage the kidneys because of the high protein and the need for protein catabolism and the need to resolve the ammonium, which would result in a higher burden of urea excretion from the kidneys. It just doesn't play out that there's any reason for concern. Indeed, the evidence suggests there's no concern. Now, the second point here is the ketosis aspect. Now, ketones are interesting molecules, whether it's acetoacetic acid or beta-hydroxybutyrate, there is a hydrogen ion that will get released. So just a hydrogen molecule, just a simple atom hydrogen can get released or pulled off from the ketone or this keto acid. Uh, and so that will get, it will get pulled off the ketone and it is because it's now a free hydrogen, it can lower the pH. 
Uh, and so the body, potentially the plasma, starts to become more and more acidic. So ketones do have a potential acidifying effect. Now the body is built to deal with these subtle changes in hydrogen ions. In the moment you have a ketone being produced and the hydrogen coming off, you then have a bicarbonate molecule. Think of just baking soda, but without the sodium attached to it. So it's not quite the same, but it's kind of like a little baking soda molecule comes in and binds that. It's built, it's, it's literally built to bind it. It is acting as what we call in chemistry a buffer or in biochemistry. So we have the bicarbonate buffering these hydrogen ions and in so doing keeps the pH totally normal. Now to bring this back to the kidneys, when we are um, requiring, when we're bind, when the bicarbonate is binding this hydrogen ion, we essentially lose the bicarbonate molecule. It gets, we've, it's not a free bicarbonate anymore. It can't just take the, uh, the hydrogen ion, buffer it, and then send it somewhere else. We've permanently altered that bicarbonate. So the kidneys are always very busily kind of recovering bicarbonate or recreating bicarbonate and, and then releasing that bicarbonate into the blood. So when we have a high ketone production, we are using our bicarbonate to buffer those ketones and make sure pH stays normal. And the kidneys are busily making sure we always have more and more bicarbonate to keep things going. Now, at high levels of ketone production, and, and by high, I mean levels that most people could never get to. This is really um, strictly relegated to the, to the groups of untreated type one diabetics and women who are breastfeeding or lactating women. There's something unique about her physiology that also allows her to produce a phenomenally high number of ketones. So in those instances, one is a genuine deficiency of insulin where there's no inhibition of ketogenesis and ketogenesis is just running rampant where you can have ketone levels get up into the high teens or higher millimolar, a level that most people could just never get to. Other, in fact, you couldn't get to otherwise. Um, it's a true absence of insulin that allows them to, or that pushes them that high. And then in the case of a woman who's lactating, if she's adhering to a low carb ketogenic diet or fasting, her ketones can get up into the seven, eights, nines and, and beyond something again, otherwise can't be achieved. In both of those instances, when you're getting around 10 millimolar or so, there's no clear cutoff, then the person is now producing so much ketone that they, they can't make enough bicarbonate. And so the pH starts to change. Now you have ketoacidosis. You've gone from just ketosis, which is producing ketones, but it's um, amply covered by the buffering of bicarbonate and pH doesn't change. And now you've exceeded the bicarbonate capacity in the blood. And now you can't buffer the, uh, the acid anymore. And now you're getting into ketoacidosis. So again, I mentioned the kidneys, lest anyone think I'm getting off topic. I mentioned the kidneys again, because they are what's responsible for helping the body keep a normal amount of bicarbonate. So there would potentially be a worry where some would say, well, I'm in ketosis. And so I need more bicarbonate and that's going to stress the kidneys. Once again, let's go to the actual evidence. And as I turn to look at the, the studies here, I actually have a couple other studies. Um, one I want to mention is in it's, in the pub it's published in the journal Nutrients. And it was published in 2020. And the senior author is Mikiko Watanabe. And the title is Very Low Calorie Ketogenic Diet, a Safe and Effective Tool for Weight Loss in Patients with Obesity and Mild Kidney Failure. They reported that 28% of these patients 
um, uh, had and they were they indicated an improvement in their GFR with adherence to a ketogenic diet. So and then the rest reported no differences. GFR didn't change. So once again, we have more evidence suggesting that at the very least, there's no effect of, of, of ketosis and, and altering negatively impacting the kidneys. And in fact, there's some evidence to suggest there's a pronounced benefit. Then the final study I wanna mention, again, directly touching on, on a ketogenic diet, not protein catabolism, which was the first point. Um, this is a, a, once again, a meta-analysis. So a study that scrutinizes the statistics of all available clinical studies. And they, this was reported in the British Journal of Nutrition in 2016. And it's entitled Impact of Low-Carbohydrate Diet on Renal Function, a meta-analysis of, of over 1,000 individuals. In fact, it was about 1,800, so it's almost 2,000 individuals. And, and this was, uh, they were able to scrutinize nine separate studies that had looked at, these were clinical studies that had looked at GFR in the context of low-carb ketogenic diets. Their conclusion, and I quote, in the present meta-analysis, we identified that the increase in GFR was greater in low-carb diet compared with the control diet in overweight and obese individuals without chronic kidney disease. So they didn't have chronic kidney disease patients, just normal, healthy people that, well, not healthy, they were overweight or obese, um, and they reported that the ketogenic diet increased their GFR. So once again, some evidence suggesting that far from hurting the kidneys, ketosis appears to, or, or the overall environment of ketosis, and that's an important distinction, appears to improve kidney function. Now, in conclusion, I'm not, with this sentiment at least, with this line, of, with this second pillar, the ketosis aspect, uh, I'm not suggesting that the ketones themselves are helping the kidneys. That's an important distinction. I would certainly suggest that the overall change in the metabolic milieu or the environment within the body, that is what's responsible for the improvement. It could be that they're lowering glucose, and by lowering glucose, they're lessening the burden on the kidney where the kidneys don't have to try to reabsorb as much of the glucose. It could be that they are, low, by lowering their insulin, they're helping the kidneys maintain a higher insulin sensitivity because we know the kidneys can become insulin resistant as well. So, and any number of other potential variables, including perhaps just lowering blood pressure, you know, more of a, a cardiovascular systemic change, which would certainly benefit the kidneys. So there could be a lot going into this, and I'm not suggesting that it's the ketones that are benefiting, but even still, at the end of it all, should someone be concerned about their kidney health with a low-carb or ketogenic diet? My response is a hearty no. The evidence suggests you don't need to be concerned, and in fact, the evidence suggests perhaps you could leverage a low-carb ketogenic diet to improve kidney function. And again, I say that um, with, with a little asterisk, with caution. I'm not your medical practitioner after all, but there is certainly evidence to support it based on at least just the handful of studies that I've cited here. It's great, Ben. We, we, uh, we should have done this a long time ago because we get a lot of questions about kidney health when it comes to uh, our coaching. So, yep, yeah, and, and there's so much um, misunderstanding um, where people take an ounce of science and they turn it into a pound of, of misinformation. I hate to use that word; it's so cliche nowadays. But that's really what it turns into. They extrapolate. Um, not even that; they don't even extrapolate because the evidence doesn't even suggest that that's what they should be stating. They just simply take what they've seen in, say, biochemistry, and then assume 
that it's going to go further. And the evidence just doesn't support it. Yeah. That's neat that you cited two uh, meta studies because those are, those are the, like the gold standard when they're yeah. looking at all of the clinical studies that way. So, yep. Yep. That's right. Well, great. Yeah, so I hope, great. I hope anyone listening, um, you know, take that for what it's worth and, and certainly use this as part of your discussion when, when people bring up um, kidney health, because man, like, like, like we've said already, that is such a common concern. Yeah. Um, Carly and Matt, do you have questions for Ben before we, uh, we we're going to also uh, take some questions that have come in on social media and on our streams, but uh, Carly, Matt, do you have questions or comments? Yeah. Um, I think first of all, anecdotally, um, in our practice, we see a lot of people who um, are fearful of kidney problems or they come in with kidney problems. We have a nephrologist that refers to us um, in Utah locally, but um, you often see th those things improve. I have seen a few people who have gotten kidney stones after um, going low carb. My guess is that that's mainly just because they're not hydrating well enough, um, which can be part of the, you know, the kidney stone thing. Um, but I've seen a lot of people have improved kidney function over time. And one of the things I think is interesting is we often will say, you know, like this whole cholesterol issue, um, because people we're worried about high cholesterol, then cholesterol that we eat must be bad for us. Um, and I, I see the same thing with protein. Um, you know, I, ha I can think of one client in particular who had protein urea, I think is what it's called, where you have too much protein in your urine, you get foamy urine or whatever. Um, and he was really worried about the protein intake. And um, I was a little nervous to work with him. I'd never seen this so drastically. Um, and week one, his protein urea improved after eating more protein. Uh, so this idea that what we eat becomes a problem, you know, protein, protein, whatever, cholesterol, cholesterol, it's just not that simple. Our bodies aren't, are more complex than that. And he saw drastic improvements. Um, no more foam when he went to the bathroom and I, you know, that's just a lot of our, our clients have seen improvement. And, and Carly, we even her. have nephrologists who refer their patients to be clients, right? Because they, they have seen, not only do they personally go through the program and experience benefits, but then they, they, uh, because kidney failure is such a multifactorial angle, it, it appears that low carb diets really help check a lot of those boxes in improving, in, in changing, as I said, the metabolic milieu of the body such that it helps kidneys. So we have nephrologists that are actively referring clients or patients to yeah. be clients. Yeah. And I think I could, I could def definitively say that everyone who's come to us that I know of that has come to me, um, that came for kidney reasons, saw improvement there. So, um, you know, besides those few that I've seen with kidney stones, but on the other hand too, with kidney stones, I have seen many people who are really prone to kidney stones. I can think of one client who was like a mass producer. He produced kidney stones every day. It was like seeing sand in the toilet. And, um, you know, he came in in tears because his improvement to that very harsh reality, which is a painful life, um, he had maybe in six months had two kidney stones. Wow. Um, so I've seen huge improvements, you know, with kidney stones as well. I think it's, it's the few who struggle to hydrate 
well or who over train or over exercise and therefore need to work on hydration even more that don't get that balance quite right. Um, that struggle. I've never seen it be a protein issue. Ben, would it make any difference if somebody only has one kidney? Does that have any effect on anything you've talked about today? Uh, that, that is a good question. <clears throat> no, it wouldn't. I mean, it would certainly make the person want to just be more cautious in general, which I would absolutely understand. But no, um, glomerular filtration rate or GFR is GFR, whether it's two kidneys or one kidneys, GFR is really the, the metric that matters most. And, and so again, based on the little evidence, and I'm, I'm extrapolating because these studies weren't done on people with a single kidney, I, I would imagine the results would be similar. Matt, Matt, did you have any comments or questions for Ben? Yeah, it was just really interesting in, um, in, in doing more background research and looking at some things. Uh, I came across Jason Fung, who I know, uh, Dr. Bickman, you've been on the stage with and communicate with fairly regularly. And as a nephrologist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Who really came to kind of the low carb uh, and looking at insulin resistance as the key driver uh, for kidney damage within his practice, um, the changes he's been able to uh, to achieve with with his patients uh, through dietary and lifestyle changes really has been significant. One of the great takeaways I took from him was that you know when it comes to this protein, is that our kidneys, the filtering of the kidneys, they don't filter out bad stuff. They filter in the good stuff, and they let the bad stuff pass through or the stuff that's not being used. And so the protein in the urine seems to be from uh, the filter not working, having basically having larger holes that it passes through, not the protein itself causing any damage. And so, Ben, could you talk about, um, you know, this is another marker, right? Uh, uh, chronic mm -hmm. kidney disease, uh, the number one cause is, is type 2 diabetes, I think, and, or diabetes in general. Yep. And so knowing that and knowing how it all revolves around insulin, um, can you talk about, is it too, mm -hmm. is it too deep to talk about the mechanism of, of yeah. how that hurts the kidneys? No, uh, not, not too deep for me. Um, so this, uh, I love that Jason's pointing it out and that you're, you're bringing that to light now. So, and, and Carly mentioning proteinuria, that really is one of the classic signs of, of kidney damage or a kidney problem, because as you note, what, what are, what's called the, the, the fenestrations are small. And so when we're talking about what is being filtered from the blood at the glomerulus into what would then become the urine moving through, 
those are very small fenestrations. Only small molecules can fit through. And proteins are much too big to fit through unless there's damage to these fenestrations. What should be something that is high integrity, very small little um, slits become much, much bigger. And now it's leaking. It's allowing molecules to pass through and proteins are among them. And again, protein is normally much too big to pass through there. And, and so when we see that coming through, and as Carly notes, proteins cause bubbles, and, and you can see that in the urine. Um, and that's what's commonly measured in, in pregnant women to make sure that their kidneys are staying healthy with regards to a risk of preeclampsia. And they're monitoring their protein in their urine, because again, it's such a staple sign. So in type two diabetes, you do have two problems, each reflective of the main two markers, I would say, gluco high glucose and high urine or high insulin, sorry. The high glucose, as much as I am an advocate of not putting, giving glucose too much credit, when it gets really high, like high hundreds and two hundreds and beyond, it is absolutely pathogenic. Part of the problem is that high levels of glucose will create, it will bind molecules in the blood and it will create what's called advanced glycation end products or AGEs or ages for short. And these ages can bind to receptors to bind to cells and it does so very readily in capillaries. And that is part of the why, part of the reason why diabetics have peripheral blood problems is because you start to damage all of those um, capillaries it, where, when it's slow moving blood through the limbs, like the hands and the feet. So these ages will bind to cells, including in the capillaries, including the capillaries in the kidney. And then when it binds to a cell, it starts promoting a local inflammation. And so now you have chronically high glucose leading to chronically high age formation, leading to then chronically high inflammation in, throughout the whole body, but most especially locally, especially at these distal capillaries where blood flow is very, very slow and ages have a long time to do some damage. So the same thing's happening at the kidneys where every speck of blood must go through the kidneys at some point. They have a high burden. They also have a phenomenally high metabolic rate. In fact, this is a, a, a bit of a tangent, but kidneys have the highest metabolic rate of any tissue in the entire body by a lot. Wow. We talk about the brain, we talk about the muscle, and the kidney metabolic rate is multiples higher, if not orders of magnitude higher than all of them. So it has a huge demand for blood for getting oxygen, getting nutrients, and then passing off its waste products. When you're damaging the, um, the, the capillaries, the vessels that are feeding the kidney, which is what ages are doing, then you are damaging the kidney. Mm -hmm. um, and then that is manifest as the physical structure of these capillaries falling apart, and now you're leaking things out that you shouldn't be. And then in contrast, um, well, that's a, a little beside the point, but you end up becoming less capable at, at excreting water. And so that while it, the, the kidneys begin become leaky to really big molecules, the overall damage is such that it actually becomes less capable at excreting water. And so with kidney damage, whether it's type two diabetes or preeclampsia in the pregnant woman, you see the blood pressure climbing, 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 climbing. Part of that is because of the damage to the kidneys. And then to of course bring insulin in, these fenestrations, these endothelial cells, both the blood vessel, well, mainly on that capillary side, they need insulin to maintain their integrity. And with insulin resistance, insulin is losing its, effic its efficacy in, in helping these, these cells maintain proper protein um, in within the cell. The cell gets damaged, and now you have, once again, more damage to the, to the capillary and the glomerulus, the operating unit 
of the kidney. So distinct mechanisms in type 2 diabetes, and I'm touching on preeclampsia, which is certainly unique, but it's all about damaged kidneys. Um, and, and here we have, you know, a relevance of glucose and insulin actually in both of those situations. Ben, it sounds like it's a similar mechanism as vascular damage that would occur from insulin uh, resistance yep. and too much insulin in the body. Is this reversible or do we know how reversible it is through the diet changes? And Yeah, yeah. So one study I mentioned where we had these obese, overweight people with mild kidney failure where, again, 28% of them reported an improvement. So that does, and, and I know Carly has seen multiple um, clients that do report improvements. So from that, I can't speak to the actual microscopic changes in what's called the fenestrations, but we can, I think it's safe to conclude um, that they do improve because we do know um, definitively that GFR does improve. And I don't think you would have GFR improving without the glomerulus itself improving. Can you, can you speak to uric acid and creatinine as a measure of kidney health? Are those good things to look at? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Creatinine, especially that's a staple because creatinine is a molecule that we're making all the time. It's a byproduct of metabolizing creatine. We've all heard of creatine. That's what bodybuilders and weightlifters like to take. Although there's also studies to show that creatine consumption daily helps with cognition. There's a human study showing that. So it's beyond just the brain, uh, the muscle, including the brain. But nevertheless, when, cre when creatine has lived its life or served its purpose, it's degraded into a molecule called creatinine that is excreted at the kidneys. Um, there are there's some other nuance when it comes to creatinine, but nevertheless, it is generally a good marker of, of, of GFR and kidney health, which is why it's going to be looked at on, every, on every, uh, virtually every um, overall kind of health test that involves any urine measuring. Um, and, and uric acid, I can't speak to uric acid quite as definitively as I can creatinine, but urea becomes uric acid upon its excretion. And uric acid, so that, that in and of itself would, again, be some marker of GFR because there's going to be some expected amount appearing in the urine. Um, uric acid also introduces some other nuance of of kidney stones because you can have uric acid stones. There are multiple different types of kidney stones you can have. Uric acid is one of them. I'm totally speculating now, um, but some, uh, some of the improvement in kidney stone formation, if they were uric acid stones, or regardless actually, could be the subtle changes in pH where depending on the pH of the urine, which is of course partly influenced by the pH of the plasma, because that's where that's kind of where, where it's interacting. So if you change plasma pH, even subtly, slightly, you could have an effect on urine pH. And if you're influencing urine pH, um, the, as, as the pH changes, it actually changes the propensity of these molecules to crystallize and become a stone. And, and, and so I wonder whether some of the beneficial changes in, say, lower stone formation might be a result of what would be generally an imperceptible change in pH. Again, most people are in ketosis and the pH is not changing, but maybe it's changed a tenth or a, you know, a fraction of a point. And that might, have, that might have enough of an influence on changing the urinary pH because urinary pH can change much more than blood pH will. In fact, part of the reason we're able to keep blood pH normal is because of what we can do to urinary pH. So it's possible that we're changing urinary pH such that it's just preventing or even dissolving stones. 
Hmm. And that, that uric acid test is, I think, really um, dependent on hydration, too. So I've seen oh, mine high oh, for before. Sure. Yeah. And I went in yeah, now well you hydrated can... the next time and it was gone. Yeah, 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 good point. You can even get um, blood uric acid measurement, which actually, Carly, you might have been intending to refer to that, or you might have. But yeah, you can even nowadays, there are devices that you'll finger prick and you'll measure glucose and ketones and uric acid. I actually think that's the day is coming where that might be part of, you know, one of the continuous glucose monitors that it's in the next few years, it'll give you all of those things and hopefully lactate. That's one of my favorites. Um, Matt and Carly, any other follow-up comments or questions? We, we've got some that I want to get to here in a minute, but any, any other follow-up before we go to, uh, to viewer questions? Just a real quick thing um, with kidney function, like so many things that are from insulin resistance, these things happen over a long period of time. And the more quickly you can intervene, because by the time a, a nephrologist or anybody sees damage in the kidney function, you've already lost, we've already lost a lot of it. So just from the coaching side, I'd encourage people to get on it sooner than later. Yep, good. Great, great. Uh, a viewer on YouTube asks, what effect does type 1 diabetes have on kidney health? Would it affect your recommendations about low-carb diets for kidney health? Uh, no, it wouldn't change my recommendations just because a low carb diet is, has been shown in type one diabetics to improve glycemia. Um, this was a, a report, a case report done with type one diabetics where the prior to the low carb diet, glycemia was like this with adoption of the low carb diet, it went like that. And that is just a known variable to, um, help maintain kidney function. And, and so my recommendations don't change. There might be some other nuance in type one diabetes that I can't speak to. Um, but insofar as a low carb diet has been shown to improve time spent in normal glucose ranges, that is absolutely anyone, every nephrologist would say that's a good thing. And I will just echo that sentiment. Okay. Uh, a kind of a related question a little bit from Fahad is low carb good if it's a kidney transplant patient? Would, would it make any difference if it was a transplant patient? Um, yeah, so the, the concern with the transplant would be the rejection of the transplant. And so the person is, of course, always on some kind of immunosuppressants and, and, and there's no study on this. And so I cannot speak and I'm not inclined, I'm not trying to present this as authority I, once again, because of the limited evidence suggesting that low carb diets um, can uh, improve kidney function, I would then be inclined to think it would improve or certainly not be contraindicated or not be something a person should avoid with a kidney transplant. And maybe even we'd go a little step further. Actually, I won't go further. I'll stop there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, from Mark, is arterial damage from type 2 diabetes the main source of kidney damage or loss? Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think it is. And it would be the mechanisms that, that I alluded to, and I'm not even alluded to, that I explicitly described in answer to Matt's comment earlier, that, that there are mechanisms. There's another one I didn't mention, which is a glucose conversion into sorbitol and how that accumulates in cells and results in something called hydropic degeneration. But nevertheless, um, that would be the mechanism where it's um, very obviously the high glucose levels causing a very direct damage. But once again, 
insulin resistance all also damaging blood vessels, um, preventing the, the relaxation of blood vessels, preventing the, the growth or the maintenance of the endothelial cells. Um, so there are other variables, multiple variables that insulin directly is having an effect, but then the glucose is as well. Okay. Um, from Ariel, does GFR need to be corroborated with another marker when there is only a mild indication of kidney damage? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's possible. Um, GFR is really the, um, the metric clinically of, of measuring kidney health, and that is based on both creatinine, as Carly mentioned, and it also can be based on what's called an inulin, not insulin, but inulin test. But even still, that's kind of assessing the same thing, albeit a little better, although it is a little more invasive. Um, there might be other metrics that you measure in the blood. You can also just measure creatinine in the blood. You could measure urea in the blood. But even still, all of those are some way going to be, an, they're going to be a result of what's happening with GFR. So I would defend GFR. If there are other metrics clinically used, I think we'd have to have the nephrologist say. Yeah, okay. From a viewer on YouTube, I have a single working kidney. Increasing fats and reducing carbs has lowered my serum cre creatinine. Is that how you say it? Creatinine. <laughs> creatinine, 0.98 now. But I need more salt now, and the doctor suggested to reduce my salt. Any thoughts? Oh, gosh. Um, so first of all, that's great. Um, if you're lowering your creatinine in your plasma, that means you're increasing it in your urine. And so that, I, that would be a good sign. So that's great news. Um, now, she, she is saying I need to increase my salt, I think, because of her adherence to a low-carb diet. Um, and then the nephrologist or the physician is saying, well, don't increase your salt. I, I imagine they're saying that because salt can increase blood pressure. But that's just not really the case, actually. There is some massive studies to show that um, salt, you, massive variations in salt consumption, people that are, is they split salt consumers into different quartiles or quintiles, people that are eating 100 times more salt than other people have no difference in any cardiovascular outcomes. That's an epidemiological study, full disclosure. Now, however, when they look at those same metro or the same quintiles of salt consumption in people who are overweight or obese, all of a sudden it does become statistically significant. It looks like there is a concern. And I would say that's all a matter of insulin because um, we know that people with high insulin are more likely to be salt sensitive hypertensives. And, and that's where the high insulin is preventing the kidneys from excreting the salt. And so if you combine those two, high insulin and high salt, that might be a problem and one worth considering. However, there's also studies to show that when people cut salt too much, the, because it's so essential to the body, the body drastically increases a hormone called aldosterone, which is trying to keep the salt in the body. It helps the kidneys start reducing its salt loss to keep salt retention. And that involves an increase in insulin. So there's actual human evidence suggesting that salt restriction causes insulin resistance, which is of course not good for the kidneys. So I am not inclined to disagree with the clinician here. Uh, and I, I do mean that despite kind of smiling as I say that, but I can't think of a physiological reason for avoiding salt yeah. in that context. How's that? That's a diplomatic answer. Yeah, it, it is. 
Keep in mind <laughs> our awesome audience that Insulin IQ is not your doctor. Dr. Bickman is not your doctor. <laughs> yeah. I can teach you, but I can't tell you about your rash or something. <laughs> That's right. We're just guys on the radio. So make sure to work with your doctor no matter what uh, the recommendations are. So uh, let's see. From, from, but in, from In practice, can I say something about please. that? In practice, everyone who I see that I explain this phenomenon with salt and I tell them as you lower your insulin, you need to increase your salt. I've never, and I can say that definitively, never seen somebody have higher blood pressure as they increase their salt and lower their insulin. Yep. Salt alone just doesn't move the needle. There are other variables that come into play. And and for a hundred years, we've known of the remarkable water retaining effect of carbohydrates. So even if there's no salt, you just spike someone's glucose, which spikes their insulin. And that just tells the kidneys to hold on to stuff that the kidneys would otherwise want to get rid of. Yeah, and we have, there, is, there is that phenomenon that doctors think, oh, if you're retaining water, cut right. down on salt. And in reality, oh, yeah. if you cut down on carbs, it goes away. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep, that's right. Yeah, that is, that is one of those um, deeply set dogmas in, in, in uh, the clinical realm that I'm not sure will ever really shake off. Yeah, we did a metabolic classroom episode about that a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if... If any of you would like a link to that, we'll have our team just paste that in. That just as a little side note, you may enjoy uh, looking at that other metabolic classroom episode. So uh, let's take one more question uh, from uh, one of our viewers, and then we'll move off of this topic and see if we have, a, we might have a couple minutes. Well, maybe not. We're, we're, we're bumping up against time here. Uh, from, from Temple, can you think of any studies regarding those who have already experienced significant kidney damage, say someone that's already in late stage three, four, or five? I'm sure what she means is uh, in relation to your recommendations. Does, mm-hmm. does it, would anything change if someone was has already had significant damage? Yeah, would that make a difference? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, Temple, that's a great question. So I. I I only know of this one where it looked at mild kidney failure, and I don't know what stage that would be considered, how that would fit into how the, the stages that you mentioned. Um, but it, again, it showed that roughly a quarter of the individuals reported an improvement, and the three quarters of them didn't report either neither improvement nor reduction. It just stayed the same. Um, so I, I just don't know. Uh, I would wonder whether this would be a great question for our, for the nephrologist that we know that refers. Um, clients over Carly um, or Matt, Carly, especially, have you seen this? Have you seen someone with really late stage kidney problems? I don't, I'm unaware of any data on this. I've worked with a handful of them. Yes. Um, Stage three and stage four and both or all of the ones I've seen have seen improvement. So that's better than 25%, but that's just anecdotally. Yep. Well, that's what we got to rely on when we don't have published data and yeah. it's valuable. I, th- I think in, in the research I did, um, when it gets to the later stage stuff, uh, the best you can hope for with the diet change is just maintain um, the GFR functioning that you do have. Uh, but that reversal, uh, once damage has occurred, can be really difficult to move from say stage four to stage three or from three to two, but they see a lot of moving from stage two to stage one. And that's also what they say about things like nerve damage. You know, I've heard that a lot. You can't yep. reverse that. And yet I've they seen do. it happen. 
So. Yeah, I wonder if it's like so many other things, like type two diabetes not being yep. reversible. It's just not over a long enough thing. period yeah. of time, and with or they're enough, doing it the wrong know, way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, once again, Dr. Bickman, thank you so much for the Metabolite Classroom today. It's been enlightening and fun, and we've had lots of viewers who who have uh, asked questions and. Remember that you can watch this on our website. Uh, if you have friends that couldn't join us today, that this uh, stream will remain on our website. Also, you can go to our podcast, the Metabolic Classroom Podcast, where we repurpose these live streams into our podcast, and you can subscribe there wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, make sure that you visit us at insuliniq.com. We, uh, we have some great coaching programs and lots of great information. Go there, sign up for our free preview course if you haven't done that before. Learn more about the things that we do with Dr. Bickman and, and in reversing insulin resistance with our coaching programs. And thank you for attending today. And thank you three for being on with me. And we will see everyone next time on Insulin IQ Live. So long for now. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.